text of this sermon is from the, as you know, Malachi is the last Old Testament book, and so we'll go backward from there, working to the left. And there's Zechariah and Haggai and Zephaniah and Habakkuk. I hope you found it. And I want you to open that, leave that open on your lap. And we'll be making reference to this entire third chapter, and in fact, the entire book. But I'll just read verses 1 and 2 and 17 through 19. If you have the place, now you listen carefully. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigeonoth. Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And verses 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there, they be, and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds' feet, and makes me walk on the high places. There is not a lot known about this obscure prophet named Habakkuk who just appears on the scene unannounced. Who he was and to what family or tribe he was born, we were not told. Neither do we know the time of his ministry. Even the meaning of the name Habakkuk is obscure, although some scholars say that his name means ardent embracing or wrestling. And to be sure, this great prophet wrestled with God concerning the agonies of life. Sanders says that Habakkuk initiates an interrogative mood into Israel's religion and consciousness as he looked around him and was concerned about why there was social injustice in the land. He asked God why and wrestled with him. He saw terrible social injustice. He saw tyranny and violence reign supreme in the land. He saw wickedness and evil triumph. He saw the wicked as they inflicted severe punishment or cruelty upon the innocent. And men were just like fishes, he says, in the sea that were caught ensnared in the nets of the despoilers. And not only did the wicked exult in their triumph, they actually, said Habakkuk, paid homage to the net. And all of these things raised an almost insurmountable barrier to, to Habakkuk's faith because it raised a serious question with him concerning the righteous character of God. And he wanted to know why things happened the way they did. 
And Habakkuk wrestled with God in prayer. Over and over throughout this passage and this book, time and time again, you're going to see this man in ardent intercession as he stretches out in faith before God to try to rend heaven and call down the revival that his people so desperately needed. And as he wrestled with God concerning the need of revival in his time, he answers for us the serious question as to when revival will come. For example, he suggests that revival will come when God acts sovereignly. He begins the third chapter with saying, I have heard your report. It should be noted that chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk deal with the immediate past or the present, but chapter 3 seems to deal with the distant past. And so this report to which Habakkuk refers seems to be a reference to the great Exodus event in the Old Testament. And when he thinks of this report or he recalls the exodus happening, the deliverance of God for his people, he says, I fear. Now note, that is not a fear of personal destruction. It means to be filled with reverence and awe so that Habakkuk was awestruck when he remembered what God had done in the great exodus event. And he thought about that and the deliverance of God to his people in the Exodus. And he prayed and wrestled with God for him to do it again. And there are two ideas that are suggested here. One is that God has worked in the past. The history of Israel is the history of an intervening God working in redemption and deliverance. Now there's not a single one of us this morning who has not stood in the past in the presence of a mighty God at work in revival. I can remember growing up as a boy experiencing in a summertime, in a year's time, in my church, a continuous, perpetual revival in which God moved in a supernatural way. Oh, we had a two-week protracted meeting and I think there were a hundred people who professed faith in Christ in that two-week time. Most of them were adults. And we had services on Sunday morning that lasted, now get this, lasted until one o'clock because people were making decisions, getting right with God and with one another, and nobody seemed to care. And I thought about that great experience through which I passed as a high school boy and the whole town was swept up in that spirit of revival and the church was filled every time it met and I have prayed God do it again. In 1904, all of Wales was adrift from God. The churches were empty, they were cold and formal. Evil was rampant, but some of the remnant of God's people were praying for revival. And Evans Roberts was one of them. And in a prayer meeting one night, praying for revival, he began to pray, Oh God, bend me, bend me. 
And in the answer to that ardent prayer and intercession, God poured out His Spirit upon Evans Roberts and upon all of Wales. And for months they experienced revival. Gamblers and infidels and drunkards were swept into the kingdom of God. Debts were paid. Awful confession of sin was heard. They even opened up the prisons and let the people out because they experienced revival and new birth inside the prison. And they were the same as those who experienced new birth outside. And the church historians have said that the mules in the coal mines in Wales refused to work because they'd never been treated so kindly. And in five months, 20,000 people were, com were committed to the church and were swept into the kingdom of God. And church historians say there were some characteristics of that revival. One was an awful personal conviction of sin by everyone, even those whose lives bore outward external evidence of religion. There was, secondly, a revival of religious interest that was continuous. And thirdly, there was spontaneity and power to the Word of God. But when I read that story of the great Welsh revival and I thought truly God has worked in the past, my prayer was this, God, I don't want to just remember an experience of my childhood or, or read about some revival in a book, what you did in the deliverance of the past. Oh God, do it again. God has been at work in the past. The second idea of this report that he recalled and upon which he reflected is this that personal revival or corporate revival is an act of God. What we need in our day, I believe, is a new reformation. We need a worldwide awakening under the Spirit of God. Now it seems to me that the church acts one of two ways. It acts organizationally or it acts organically. The organization is what man does. It's man's strength. It's man's energy and power. The organization thinks in terms of administration and finance and committees and ways and means. The organization promotes, prompts, and performs. For example, when there's going to be a series of evangelistic meetings, the organization advertises, brings in, quote, some big name folks, end quote, and tries to coax the people to come with gimmicks. Isn't that just about the way we do? And when the organization confronts a crisis, the first thing it thinks about is how is the best way to deal with that crisis? and it operates and acts just as any other institution that wants to present a margin of profit. Carl Bates, when he was pastor in Amarillo, said that if God suddenly withdrew His Holy Spirit from our churches, 90% of what we're doing now we'd keep on doing and brag about it. And then he asked this searching question, he said, what are you doing in your church that can only be done if the power of God falls on it? 
On the other hand, organically, if the church acts organically, that means that the fellowship, listen to me, that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in His fire and power pervades, pervades the organization. Now that doesn't mean that the organization will not be used. Just like a living, growing tree will build a trunk and bark and branches. But I want you to know that it's not going to do any good to take a dead post and nail bark on it and pump sap into it and expect leaves and fruit on it. Because the leaves and the fruit come from the life that's within it. If the church is living organically, the fruit it produces will be the result of the pervading presence of the Holy Spirit who works unhinderedly within the organization. That's what we need. It seems to me that the average church is a great mass of organization without any power or life. It's not by might nor by power, says the Bible, but by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord. I heard a man tell about going camping one time, and he said he had an air mattress. And he got out there, and it was time for, for them to go to sleep, time for them to retire, and so he had one of these little foot pumps, and he pumped up his air mattress with a foot pump. And he said he got out, laid, he, he, he laid down on the mattress and went to sleep. It was nice and comfortable on the hard ground. He said an hour later, he woke up sleeping on the ground. For there was a very small leak in the air mattress, and the air was escaping. And so he got up, and he pumped up his mattress again with his foot pump, and he, he got on his mattress, went to sleep. An hour later, he woke up, and he was on the ground again. And he said, I spent all night long pumping up my mattress so that I could rest. And as he told that story and brought the analogy, I said to myself, isn't that a pretty good parable of the modern church? We spend hours and we expend energy just trying to keep the organization pumped up. Isn't that true? And we pump up this area of the organization and we keep trying to pump something into that which is where there is, there is something lacking or missing. And we just wear ourselves out trying to keep the organization pumped up. Folks, what we need is not to work something up. What we need is to pray something down. For revival comes when God in sovereignty moves upon the church in His power and holiness. Revival comes secondly when God's people pray desperately. Now this term, in the midst of the years, is a term which means in the time of difficulty and need. Here was a man who was in dire straits praying this prophet. Here was a man with his back against the wall. He's in desperate straits. And there's a sob in his voice. There are tears in his eye. There's a burden on his heart. He has reached an extremity. I have read and I have reread the stories of, personal, of church revivals and personal revivals. 
And I have found this common denominator that God sends revival to His church and to His people when they reach the point of desperation. It's when their backs are against the wall. It's when they reach an extremity that God sends revival. Now Habakkuk looked around him and he saw sin piled high as mountains. And he saw the wicked compassing the innocent. And he saw the standards and the commandments of God being violated and disregarded. And he saw God's people so backslidden that God was going to raise up a heathen nation to bring them, to whip them into submission and obedience. Does that sound familiar to you? I don't know for sure, but it seems to me that America has gotten herself into such a state that only a divine invasion from God will meet our needs. Would you listen to this statement that appeared not long ago in Harvester magazine? Listen to this. It is doubtful whether in the history of the world there has previously been a period of difficulty so complex in character and so widespread in effect as that through which we are presently passing. A feeling of uncertainty and instability prevails in every circle and the future seems to hold no sure promise of either peace or prosperity. It was never more true that upon the earth there is distress of nations with perplexity, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. In the midst of change and unreliability, spiritual values alone remain immutable and there never was a greater need for the remainder of their reality, security, and stability. Yet, the church which, the church which should be proclaiming the glorious news seems totally inadequate to meet the need. Generally speaking, the lives of Christians do not differ to any great extent from the lives of other folk around them. They share the same fears, express the same doubts, feel the same uncertainty, show the same disconcertion, the peace of God and the joy of Christ are little in evidence. The dynamic power of the Holy Spirit is not appropriated." End quote. Now if there ever was a time when the church ought to be in desperate praying for revival, it is our day. But I think Vance Havner may have slapped the church awake when he made that statement. He said, the tragedy is that the situation is desperate, but the church is not. But it's not just that when I look around and read the accounts of the problems of our time that make me feel a need for desperate praying. It's when I look at my own life. For I'm here to confess to you this morning that, that what I feel in desperation is not because of what's happening in the world in which I live. I'm kind of far removed from that, really. 
But I feel a desperate need of revival because of what I see or what I do not see in my own life. It's me, O oh Lord, that's standing in the need of prayer. I'm concerned, aren't you, that the heart burning heart that used to characterize my life and ministry is grown, has grown cold. Do you feel that same sense of urgency and concern? Where are the tears? Where are the sobs? Where is the groaning? Where is the concern? The Salvation Army evangelist wrote William Booth, the founder, and said, there's something wrong with my ministry. Nobody's being saved, William Booth said. Just this simple statement, have you tried tears? And the evangelist knew what he was talking about. He began to pray to God for a broken heart. He, he got that burden and he got the results. Where is the compassion that Bomar felt in Scotland when he would lie on his bed at night, listen to the footsteps of people passing his, his house on their way to the pubs, and he would cry out, Oh, they perish, they perish. Where is the concern of Livingston that would follow a trail into the jungle and he would lie on his face in his tent and cry, Oh, when will the wounds of this world's sin ever be healed? Where is the compassion and the concern that should just kind of ooze out of the pores of every one of God's people? These are desperate days. And there's a need for desperate intercession. Have you noticed how many times Jesus in the New Testament refers to the to the prophet of desperate intercession, like the man knocking at his neighbor's door in the midnight saying, friend, get up and fix me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come and he wants something to eat and I have nothing to set before him. And that prayer, that request, that knocking in the midnight was a desperate knocking because he had an inescapable responsibility and he had inadequate resources to meet it. Do you feel the same responsibility and the same inadequacy? Why isn't there ardent intercession before God? Revival will not come to any church, to any people until her people become desperate until we go home on Sunday morning as though our hearts would break on Sunday at noon. And our main concern is not who's going to be first in the cafeteria line, but our main concern is, Oh God, my friend was not saved today. My friend was not saved today. And revival will not come until we leave on Sunday morning. Not thinking about what I'm going to do when I get away from church the rest of the afternoon. Now I've paid my dues. The rest of the week is free. But when we leave with a burden on our hearts saying to God, I think I'll perish unless the power of God falls upon us. And revival comes finally. And if you think you're hot... There's nobody here is as warm as I am, so just fan a little and, and stay with this last idea, will you? Revival comes when God's people live exemplary 
lives. And that involves three things. It means living faithfully. Habakkuk 2 said, The just shall live by faith. That is to say, revival comes when God's people live faithfully. And even though God does not pour out righteousness upon the land, they keep on living faithfully. Somehow in my heart this morning, my prayer, I must tell you that my prayer in the last weeks has been for personal revival, for the supernatural to become natural, for the abnormal to be normal. And I believe that I have it in my heart, if I know my heart, I believe I have the assurance from God that I'm going to see revival like revival in my time. And the responsibility that is mine and yours as God's people is to live faithfully until it happens. The New Testament talks something about the early and the latter rain. For in that ancient world, rain came at two seasons. It came in October when the seed was planted, and it came in late April just as the seed was being matured in the crop. And there had to be both rains for a good fruitful crop. And so the Scripture says for us to be faithful to be patient, waiting for the early and the latter rain. I think we have seen the early rain. I think Pentecost has come. We have the evidence of it in the New Testament. We have seen great awakenings and we have experienced revivals in our lifetime. We have seen the early rain. We must wait faithfully and patiently for the latter rain when God pours out afresh His Spirit upon the church. And it means to live righteously, not just faithfully, righteously. For you see, if there is sin in the church, if there is sin in our lives, God cannot bless with revival. There never has been in the, in the history of God's Word a revival that has ever come that has not been preceded by repentance. Has repentance become obsolete Read the book of Joshua sometime and see how God's army became impotent just because one man had disobeyed God, had sin in his tent. And that sin had to be exposed and had to be confessed and had to be rooted out. There can be no revival until God's people repent. And if there is sin in our life, God cannot bless His church or His people until that sin is confessed and rooted out. And they must live rejoicingly. I want you to notice again verses 17 through 19. In verse 17, Habakkuk describes a nation that is desolate. What a description. Barren, desolate, fruitless. What a description of the modern church. And yet, he says in that same chapter, in that same passage, I will exult in the Lord. And G. Campbell Morgan said, if you translate that literally, it means I will jump up and spin around for joy. He looked at the nation in desolation and in waste, and he said, I will leap up and down and rejoice and joy. For you see, real faith 
looks beyond the barrenness and laughs victoriously because real faith knows that it doesn't matter how desolate or how barren is the church or the nation. God can revive and restore. I tell you, this valley of dry bones can live. And the joy and the exultation of one's heart is this, that it doesn't matter the condition of a nation, it doesn't matter the condition of a church, God can revive and restore that people. And he says that while he's waiting for revival and living faithfully and righteously and rejoicingly, God does three things for him. Watch this. It just leaped out at me one night while I was lying in my bed thinking about it. While that happens, he said, God will energize me. That is to say, he said in, in, in verse 19, the Lord is my strength. He becomes our strength and He will stabilize me. He gives me feet like hinds feet. And a, hinds was a, a hind was a, a stag, a mountain deer that had sure-footedness. It means stability. Nothing we so desperately need than some stability because our life is just like a roller coaster from one emotional peak to the next. And then He said, God, while I'm waiting for revival, will vitalize me. He makes me stand and walk in the high places. And then God communicated to my heart this truth that while we are waiting for revival to take place in a nation and in a church, God gives us personal revival in our own hearts. He becomes our strength. He infuses us with His power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And He gives us some stability so that we begin to walk with some measure of continuity and stability, not just from one emotional experience to the next. And He enables us to stand in holy places and walk on the high places. That is, He enables us to come right into His throne presence. And so I guess that what I'm saying this morning is that maybe our prayer should be redirected to the point, Lord, not so much, Lord, revive my church as, Lord, revive me and give strength to my life and give stability to my feet and give me the experience of walking in heavenly places, in high places. I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. Could this be your prayer? Would this be your prayer? Oh God, would you act in a sovereign way this morning and in power, would you act? And would you pray this, Lord, I am desperate. My life is not what it should be. My heart is cold. My life is, has evidence of sin, inconsistency. Oh Lord, do a work in me like you have done in the past. Would you pray that prayer for yourself and for your church?
And then is there one who would pray this prayer? Lord, my life is barren and empty because I have never really trusted your son. I want him to be my savior today. I want him to come into my life to save me. Would you accept Christ this morning? Would you give him your sin? And were there, are there those this morning who feel the leadership of God to come and place their life with us? Oh, would you pray for the fire of God to fall? Heavenly Father, I pray in these moments of invitation that what you have spoken to our heart shall be in reality how we respond. And I pray this morning, Lord, not for anyone, but, for, but only for me. First of all, for me. Send revival to my own heart, Father, and to my church. And I pray, God, that where there is sin in the camp, in the ranks, something of selfishness, something of hindrance, something why God would withhold his blessing, that we'd say, Lord, oh Lord, is it in me? And be, we would be willing to repent. And I pray, Father, for those you would add to our church, for those who would need to trust you as Savior, Father, trust your Son, Lead them to that decision, I pray. Right now, I ask it of thee, dear Father, in Jesus' name.